I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 5. We'll study verses 6 through 8. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. It's with these verses that we pick up where we left off in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And let me remind you that we are in what some have called the book of justification by faith, where Paul, for three chapters, again and again and again, explores what it is that a person is right with God, declared righteous by his faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. And if you're visiting with us, that means that we've studied from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through here, chapter 5, verse 5. And this morning we're just continuing on. And there's a purpose in that, and it's because we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, not only in its words, but in its order. And that the Lord is wise, that He's pastoral in its order, and that we might receive benefit if we study it verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. And so let us turn our attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died For the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, this is the word of God for you. He has given it to us for our blessing that we might be strengthened and drawn to his son and raised up in his mercy and placed on feet that we will have into the kingdom that is coming in the return of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Lord, your mouth speaking in 66 books. Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding this morning. Lord, that you would give us submission to your word. Lord, that you would give us hope and peace. Oh, Father, that this morning we would look deeply into the grace that you give to your people. Oh, Lord, that we would know the height and the depth of your love. Lord, that we would regard Jesus as our Savior and that we would praise you for his sacrifice. Father in heaven, we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Friends, how do you understand the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you ever taken time to simply think long, to meditate upon the kindness and the mercy and the compassion of the gracious sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you and for the world. Well, here this morning in these few verses, Paul is inviting us to look squarely at the cross and to think on Christ with pierced hands and pierced feet, 
to know the Lord with the bleeding brow and to receive him afresh with thankful hearts, amazed and receptive that he could love sinners like us. This passage of Scripture tells us a little bit about ourselves, and it tells us even more about the heart of God. Two things I want us to see this morning. Firstly, in verse 6 is the context of grace. The context of grace. And then in verses 7 and 8, the display of grace. The display of grace. Something I want to make a note of is this. If you've been in our church, you may have a sense of this already, that generally two-point sermons, they function to give contrast, usually. It's sort of light, it's dark, it's yes, it's no, it's good, it's evil. But this passage of Scripture and these two points don't contrast, really. In fact, there's one and then the second which explains it or gives commentary to it. And it's one thing that's just simply true. Uh, Not all passages of Scripture fit into a three-point outline that any minister might enjoy rhetorically. But nonetheless, this is a wonderful passage. And the central thread that Paul wants us to see here is the grace of God given to you and to me an expression of his love. The grace of God given to you and me an expression of his love. And so we come to verse 6 and to the first point. The context of grace. And you know, we may ask the question, something that people have asked quite a lot, and it's this simple question. For whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? What sort of people are the people that Christ hung on the cross for? In fact, this is a question that the Lord himself pays attention to. Again and again And again in his ministry, he does it with the Pharisees. For I did not come to seek the righteous, but sinners came to serve. And again and again and again, Jesus is faced with this. Is he there to be a political leader? A Messiah on an earthly throne with a crown of gold and jewels? Who did he come for? What is his purpose? Who did he come to die for? The modern world looks at the question, for whom did Christ come to die? And they may answer the question in a variety of ways. Some people might say, well, of course, Jesus came for holy people. He came for obedient people. He came for churchgoers, well-dressed people, successful people, people in control. He came for good people, respectable, upright, righteous He came for Christians. He came for this, that, and every other description. But here, in verse 6, Paul wants to tell us for whom did Christ come to die? Who did he come for? And so we read verse 6. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This simple verse of scripture should grab your attention. 
because it does not agree with the theology of false religions. What would other religions say? Well, they would say that any form of salvation, any benefit, any eternal salvation, well, of course, it's for those that keep rigid religious practice. It's for good people. It's for people who are morally upright and altogether in a right way. But verse 6, what does it say? While we were still weak. That's the first thing that Paul wants us to know. That Jesus Christ came for people weak. Other translations, helpless. Whenever you look at the word in its original language, and I think in the German it's even more clear, it is while we still had no ability... It speaks to moral capacity. And so what does Paul mean in a larger sense about the incapacity, the helplessness, the inability, the weakness of the people that Christ came for? And I want to tell you that it doesn't mean physical strength. It doesn't mean a weak arm, a weak leg, a weak back, a weak head, somebody that is in themselves physically weak. I don't know about you, But whenever I take groceries from the car into the house, it's a bit of a display of manly power for me. I don't know if any of the men or maybe any of the ladies in the room have this. My little boys certainly feel the tension of it. But I'll reach with one hand and I'll hook one bag, two bags, three bags, four bags, as many bags as I think I can hold with the left hand. That's the weak one, right? Because I'm right-handed. And then the right hand comes and I try to get them all. And so here I am going into the house... You know, 45 pounds, quite a lot of kilos of goods up the stairs into the house. And I'm always looking for Elise to look at me and just say, wow, what a strong guy. Never once has she done that. (laughs) I am always impressed with myself until I can't manage them all. This doesn't speak about physical weakness or physical strength, but this is spiritual And the Apostle Paul looks directly at this, and I believe he gives us a a depiction of it in Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, Ephesians chapter 2, we'll read together verses 1 through 3, and he describes this helplessness, this weakness. And it's a whole lot worse than not handling the bags. Let me say that. He writes... And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Well, that's some weakness. To be dead without the ability to lift a finger, to twitch a muscle, to have a thought, to breathe in spiritually. That's how Paul describes this helplessness, this spiritual weakness. It's a heart that's dead. That's the first thing he says about it. But he goes on and he says, in which he once walks. You've got a dead person who's on feet and walking. And it's this strange, undead depiction. This horrible spiritual estate of a person. It's not just they're walking like they're working out or something. But they're following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. This is the depiction of of a person in rebellion to God and following a false leader, following Satan, the prince of the power 
of the heir, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This title, Sons of Disobedience. If Satan were to have an army, maybe this is on their banner, the standard, the patch on their shoulder. Sons of Disobedience. At the weakness of a sinful heart, overwhelmed and dead in sin, is that they only disobey the Lord so much so that it may as well be their last name. That it's the thing they're known for. The qualifying characteristic of the state of their souls. And then Paul makes it universal in verse 3. It's not just those people over there. It's not just those dead things. It's about us. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. All of us experience this weakness, this helplessness, this slavery to disobedience and to the temptations of Satan and the rebellion of the heart of a sinful man. Not only that, but we experience the slavery of our own minds and our own hearts and our own desires. Pursuing the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, like an animal, uncontrolled and untamed, just given over to whatever strikes the mind, the heart, the tongue at the moment of sinful desire. And then another title, not just children or sons of disobedience, but rather children of wrath. How are they known? They're not just known as being those that thumb their nose at God, but being those who deserve the wrath of the holy God. It's a pretty terrifying picture. The weakness of the heart of a man or a woman or of all the kids in the room with a mind that wants to sin, a flesh that likes to sin, that sin is pleasant. That's the weakness. That's the helpless state where our minds can't fight it. Our hands can't help but do it. Our tongues can't help but sin against the Lord. And we are a people averse to the Lord, the God of heaven. That's the weakness. Slavery. And what Paul is saying to us is it's that we were just like that. That was how we were whenever Christ came and died for us. That's how he found us. That's what he saw. Nothing less than that, nothing more than that. That's exactly what he saw. And then Paul gives us another title back in Romans chapter 5 telling us another thing about ourselves in the context within which we received grace. Christ died for the ungodly. So we've talked about the moral weakness of man. But how about the relationship of man with his God? You know, this word depicts this relationship that's broken, this ungodliness, a person that lives a life with no regard for God, the ungodly, the asavion, a person whose, whose heart doesn't think on God, doesn't consider the Lord, but, but literally and seriously lives apart from him or would certainly like to live as if he didn't exist. What's Paul saying? 
Is he beating us up? Is he throwing a little bit of mud in our eye? No. He's saying when we were helpless, ungodly, sinful people, that that was exactly the right time for Jesus to come and die for us. That that was the time that Jesus came for helpless, ungodly sinners. Who did Christ come to die for? Helpless, morally corrupt, slavish sinners that wanted nothing to do with him but to curse him and to rebel against him. That's who Christ died for. Not for religious people with their lives together. Or people who do morally good things that serve in soup kitchens and show up to every service of Covenant Fellowship Church. But for a people with broken hearts and broken minds and broken desires. A people who don't praise God, who don't love God, who actively rebel against Him. That's who He came for. And that was the timing of God and the context that He was pleased to pour out His grace upon us. So let me ask you a question again, friends. Who did Christ come to die for? We know that the Lord loves the holy heart. We know that the word of God says, be holy as your God in heaven is holy. But our redemption is a rescue mission from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the circumstance of a helpless person in chains with no other hope but Jesus. And that's who the Lord came for. For a messy people with messed up lives who have made a wreck of themselves, who have destroyed their relationships in this world and between themselves and the God of heaven. That he came and he died at that time, the right time, our worst time so that we might be reconciled with the God of heaven. So if I'm going to apply this, what do I need to say to you? It's this. Jesus found you as a helpless, ungodly, and sinful person, and he died for you in that context. He knows this about our hearts and he demands only, only that we would receive him by faith. Jesus doesn't say, you know, don't bring that dirt into my house. Leave that baggage outside. Don't bring that sin in here. He doesn't say, wow, your language is so ungodly. Maybe you shouldn't be here until you get yourself straightened up. He says, come on, give me all of your mess, all of your sin, all of your weakness, all of your struggle with the variety of sins in your life, all of the things that you wish I didn't know. I see them, just give them right on to me. The worst of what you have, just give it here, give me the baggage. I'll take it from you and I'll die for you as a sacrifice for your sins. That's the testimony of this. Is that with a full knowledge of the ugliness of who we are, Jesus died for us. He 
took on our guilt and the pain of all of our anguish. And he bore it unto his own death so that we might not die. In verses 7 and verse 8, we see the display of grace. And really, verses 7 and 8 are kind of a commentary on verse 6. There's so much there in verse 6. Don't just think that, you know, seven or eight words in the Bible, you know, might be brief in their explanation. They aren't, and they usually are so full of meaning. But here you have it in verses 7 and 8. Specifically, in verse 7, you have the beginning of a contrasting picture. Paul is expressing something to you. And here in verse 7, there's this illustration of the magnificence of the grace of God. And he gives us this kind of human depiction, if you will. He says, For one, verse 7, will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. I hope you understand what he's saying there. You have this this twofold situation, if you will. Uh, This situation, hypothetically, about the scarcity of a person being self-sacrificial. He says, rarely, almost never, would a person die even for a righteous person. Almost never, rarely, ever, would a, a person die for somebody they felt like was really good and lived a really moral life and really had it together. I mean, it's conceivable. It happens, but it's a scarce occasion. And he goes on and expands on this. He says, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, or maybe for a good person, maybe somebody would. And one thing I want to encourage you is to not look at this and try to think that Paul's saying that there's a difference between righteousness and goodness. Like, Righteousness is somehow less than a good person. You could read it like that in the English translation, but that's not at all what he's saying. What Paul is trying to illustrate is that even for a righteous or a good person, someone giving themselves to death for them, it's almost unheard of. It's really rare. It's a thing not even common for a person that they consider really, really good. I can illustrate this for you. Think of it like this. Maybe a parent they're walking with their child and they're in a circumstance and the child runs into traffic. They're near the road. Now, I think every parent in the room, every single one of us, and maybe not even just parents, just let me say adults, if I can even broaden it, would say, well, of course I would run and of course I would jump in and of course I would push that child, that innocent little child We understand innocence, but of course I'd push them out of the way and I'd take the car for them. Some parents have, some parents do. It's not always a thing that happens. Sometimes people freeze, sometimes people don't know what to do. Children are hit by cars, but the sense of it is simply this, and the illustration could be put in this way. Parents would like to sacrifice themselves for their children for the sake of the benefit of the one that they love and they think are good. Another illustration, this is uh, painfully inadequate. So brothers, sisters, uh, do forgive me for this, but the depiction of the soldier in the midst of a company, in the midst of a battle. Somebody 
takes and they throw a grenade or an explosive device into an area where there are multiple soldiers and you've got the classic depiction of heroism in the military setting. A soldier throwing themselves on top of a grenade to shield their friends from its blast. The self-sacrifice. Either they think their friends are good or they have a consideration for the goodness of the kingdom or country that they live and, and operate for and defend. However it is. This depiction of self-sacrifice. And Paul is saying those things happen. They're almost unheard of. They're entirely rare. They're celebrated even when they happen. But there's a contrast. Verse 8. Our situation isn't that. Verse 8. But. That ought to clue you off to things are different. We're not talking about righteous people and good people. But. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand what he's saying? You see, there's that contrast. It's conceivable to die for good people, but we're not good people. We're sinners. A people with morally corrupt minds and morally corrupt hearts and flesh that delights in wickedness and rebellion And Paul says, and it's in that context. It's in that circumstance that Christ is given for us to die. While we were still sinners, and somebody might come and say, why? Why? How can this be? Why would Jesus ever die for people like that? Right? And I'll tell you, this is one of the central questions that that unbelieving people regularly bring to Christians. You know, Pastor, I hear what you're saying. I understand it basically. You're telling me that one person died for a really terrible person. And they hear with the ears that, you know, the people are really terrible. And they take the preaching really seriously. They understand it clearly. If you're telling me somebody's that bad... Why would anybody ever die for them? Don't they just deserve it? Right? They hear it with the ear of civil justice. If if we're really that bad, well, shouldn't we be taken out? Well, I'll tell you why. And Paul tells us why here in verse 8. It is because of the love of God. It's this terrible context of this sinful person who has the wonderful Savior to die for them. And the reason for that is that God loves us. God loves ungodly, weak, helpless sinners. He loves us so much that even in the midst of our sins, whenever we're at our worst, at the time of our worst departure, with that in full sight... He gave his only begotten son to be in atonement, to pay the price for our sins, to purchase us out of what we deserve. That's how, that's why. Because of the depth of the love of the heart of God. 
where do I go with that and how do I apply that to you? And it may be this, friends, Christian, you struggle over the sense of your own salvation and over this security that you really wish you had and knew and understood. And you think of yourself and you think of your struggles and you think of your weakness and your weak faith and you think of the delights you still have in the things of the flesh and you think of the failures of your tongue and of your mind all the time and the things that always hound you and pursue you and depress you and overwhelm you and you think to yourself I just don't know I just don't feel it I just can't imagine how he could possibly even still be my savior and I want to tell you this it's because you did nothing to earn his love God extended his love freely to you in his son because he is loving do you understand what I'm saying? It's, it's almost unthinkable because we don't work this way. I promise you, you either do or you don't love me or like me because of how I am or how I am not. And I am the same way. But the love of God is different. The love of God can be genuinely and sincerely extended to the worst person to his worst enemy, to the worst sinner and blasphemer because he is loving. You say, Pastor, I hear what you're saying. Help me understand it a little bit. I can only give you another piece of scripture and hope that you can get your head around it in some portion or at least in a capacity. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Got another one of those but sentences. We've already talked about all the sin of the person and in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. What does that even mean? That means that even though we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind, verse 3, that in verse 4, God is rich in mercy He doesn't give us what we deserve. How? How can this be? Because of the great love with which he loved us. What? That doesn't answer the question. How can this even be? It's because God has a loving heart that beats eternally. And his love does not depend on you. Because if he did, you are unlovely. And you wouldn't be loved. But his love depends on his own heart. That's why Paul says he can have mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He loves us because he wants to love us. That's the beginning of the story of our redemption. And friends, that's the end of the story of our redemption. He has mercy on us because he loves us and he loves us because he wants to love us. Verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive Together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. Do you know the love of the Savior? Do you know the undeserved love, the kindness and compassion? Have you received this wonderful display of the grace of God written in the pierced body of Jesus and colored by his blood? How can a person have this? 
by simply clinging to Christ by faith. Even if it's weak and shuddering and stumbling and failing and imperfect faith with barely the pinky's grip upon him. Having faith in Christ, and this morning I want to call you to it, to cry out to him and say, Lord Jesus, be my Savior. I need the redemption that can only be had in you. And then hide yourself in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Father, we ask that you would help us to receive it. Lord, if, if you will and are pleased to allow that we would understand it. But that in every case that we would simply know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Lord, the Redeemer of our souls. The sacrifice for our sins. Father, we pray all of this and ask that you would bless us as a church that you would keep us as your children. Oh Lord, that we are no longer children of wrath, but children of promise and a children of blessing. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.